Welcome to Workforce Rx with Futura Health, where future-focused education, healthcare, and workforce leaders explore new education-to-work approaches and innovations. I'm your host, Von Tone Quinlevin, CEO of Futuro Health, and today I'm happy to welcome Dr. Rishi Manchanda, a physician, author, and healthcare leader whose career has focused on developing new strategies to improve health in resource-poor communities. Through a mix of frontline and leadership positions, he's helped provide care for homeless veterans, immigrant workers in rural areas, and communities in South Central Los Angeles. On the national stage, he's best known for a popular TED Talk and book about upstreamists, healthcare workers who improve care by addressing social needs such as food and housing. Currently, he is president and CEO of Health Begins, which works across the country to improve the social drivers of health and equity. I'm looking forward to talking to him today about the intersection of public health and workforce development. Thanks so much for being with us today, Rishi. Can you start by telling us about yourself and what led to your interest in medicine? Well, Vaughn, first, thank you so much for having me and thanks for um, the opportunity to join you. I think this is going to be a fun conversation, just having had a few conversations with you in the past. So uh, I'm looking forward to this and hi to everybody who is listening in. Uh, so I, as you said, I'm a physician, I'm a public health doc. I decided to go into this field of medicine and of public health because of early experiences that I had um, going back to college and work I did after college in India. So for example, just a quick story of one particularly formative moment. Um, one day in a rural part of India that I was uh, visiting for about two or three months, um, I was accompanying a local nonprofit organization that was staffed by clinicians, community health workers, uh, general community development staff. And I joined the clinician on the team to see some patients. And it was about two or three hours in the clinic. And then she stood up and she said, well, okay, now let's go and continue our day. And we drove to an outlying community and went door to door to support a broader uh, campaign along with about 20 other people who were doing door to door sanitation surveillance work, talking about latrines, talking about hygiene. And not just talking about both th those very essential things, but also checking in with people saying, how are you doing? And you could tell that uh, this wasn't the first time that this group that I was a company uh, had met with this community. There were deep relationships, smiles, hugs exchanged. Um, they were talking about health in the broader context of people in their homes and their communities. And I thought that's exactly the kind of profession I want to have. I want to be as comfortable working in the walls of a clinic as this clinician was, as I can um, being able to be effective along with partners in the community. So it, it was that early exposure and many others like that that allowed me to pursue this career. I've had the good fortune of being a primary care doc with a public health heart uh, all my life. Well, we're so glad that you had this early exposure to uh, public health. As I mentioned at the beginning, you have helped serve a variety of underserved populations as a physician and an administrator. What drew you to this work beyond the early exposure in India? As simple as it may sound and as uh, hokey as it may sound these days, you know, I got into medicine because I thought this was a means to be able to understand how to enter a broader conversation about community and public health. Uh, it's not the only pathway to have these conversations. This is the path that I chose to kind of enter into this broader conversation that we're all in. When I signed up for med school, I applied for a program called the National Health Service Corps. The gist of the program is uh, if you are committed to working with underserved populations, the federal government will pay for your health professional education, in this case, medical school. So I had the good fortune of being able to get the scholarship and then uh, finish my medical school and public health training. 
And that allowed me to work first at Venice Family Clinic, which is at that point one of the nation's largest free clinics. It's since become a community health center. And then after a year of working there, every Thursday I'd go over to South LA and work with community organizers and uh, community health centers there to speak about issues of housing or food. A year of doing that led to some wonderful opportunities. I was invited to join uh, assistant medical director at a community health center in South Central Los Angeles. And uh, I accepted the offer, you know, which was a gracious offer to begin with, but I asked if I could modify the job title. And they said, sure, you know, we just need people to help out. So whatever you want, just go ahead and come and just do the work. The job title that we agreed to was the Director of Social Medicine and Health Equity, which allowed me to spend my admin time, my eight hours a week that I had outside of direct patient care, to build programs and to start working you know, on questions of how do you screen for housing and security? How do you address food insecurity? How do you talk about human rights? And how does, what's the role of a clinic or a clinician um, to be part of that broader conversation and advance these things? It was an incredible opportunity and one that I'm always grateful for. That opportunity allowed me to fulfill my commitment to the National Health Service Corps while also um, doing the exact kind of work I wanted to do. Um, and since then, I've just been privileged to be able to work in other communities that have had lack of resources, but have had incredible insights. So one kind of way to put a bow on this answer to your question, Yvonne, about why the need is greatest um, in communities where resources are least. The insights, the innovations, the passion is also greatest um, in those communities oftentimes because you have incredible experts, incredible leaders who out of necessity, you know, have been advocating, innovating, serving uh, to address those needs. The force was strong, right, in underserved communities across the country and it, because there's so many incredible people from promotoras de salud to community health workers to community organizers to housing advocates to uh, moms and dads who are every day, you know, finding new ways to be able to do right by their families. I mean, so many incredible people that I had the privilege of, frankly, not just serving, but learning from. And I became convinced that this was the space to be in. If you're going to go into health professions, uh, from my experience, I highly recommend applying those lessons in places where the need is greatest because uh, the rewards on a personal level and a professional level are immense. Well, I can't wait to jump into the discussion of social determinants of health, something you detail in your book, The Upstream Doctors. Can you help us understand what that phrase means and, and how should we think about this? What I found is that, you know, working in South LA, uh, when I would say social determinants of health, the term just barely came out of the mouth before the eyes would glaze over, right? What? It, okay, got it. Okay, that's good. But how do I talk about that over Thanksgiving? <laughs> you know, how do you talk about this? So... What I found necessary was to communicate it through the upstream parable. In this parable, three friends come to a river, and much to their dismay, they see people in the water, and they're not swimming leisurely, they're drowning. Um, children, adults, the elderly, they're being pulled towards a waterfall, and obviously it's perilous. So the three friends do what many of us do in you know, the health professions or in any kind of service-oriented industry, we, they jump right in. The first friend says, I'm going to save those who are at risk of drowning, those closest to the waterfall. The second friend over time, who's doing the same thing and rescuing people, she says, well, I, I have an idea. Let me take some of the vines along the banks of the river and the branches I can see and weave together a raft, coordinate all these kind of elements together to create a raft and usher people to safety. Over time, they continue to do this work and it's effective uh, most of the time, but they start getting fatigued. They start getting a little burned out. They start seeing sometimes the same people they saved last week in the water again. And out of this fatigue, out of this cognitive dissonance, they start blaming the people in the water that they're rescuing rather than asking kind of deeper questions. This is a story of specialty care or specialists and primary care, right? 
the story of the rescuers are the people that you want when you're in dire straits. The ICU nurse, the you know, critical care surgeon, the oncologist, the, you know, the people that we need when we have serious medical problems. Raft building is primary care, right? That's the work of coordinating the branches together and creating essentially in, through a team, the ability to usher people to safety, to provide them with the clinical preventative services and the various other uh, relationships, the continuity over time so that people don't have to end up just in need of rescue. And so far that's been the story of American healthcare, right? We've been telling ourselves the story and crafting our entire conversations around workforce, largely within that frame of the rescuer and the raft building and clearly having important debates about the allocation of resources between downstream specialists and you know, primary care raft builders. What happens in this story is that those two friends uh, eventually recognized that there was another friend that jumped in the water with us. Where'd she go? She's swimming away from them. And they shout to her, where are you going? There, there are people here to save. And she shouts back, I'm gonna find out who or what is throwing these people in the water. That third friend is the part of the workforce that I'm trying to elevate in my career. I model myself as an upstreamist. That's the name I give to ourselves. The upstreamist is somebody who is part of a healthcare profession and whose job specifically is to have the knowledge and the skills to be able to understand, help, help their system, their team members understand, and then collectively marshal resources to address the upstream factors. And that doesn't mean the healthcare system's job is to fix housing or food or you know, social isolation, but it is healthcare's job to create the upstreamists, to create a link between our downstream sick care system and the other public health, other upstream sectors. The upstreamist is really kind of like the interstitial tissue, the, the connective you know, tissue, the person who is trying to connect our systems of healthcare delivery to the broader systems of community change. And that's the way of talking about both the social determinants of health as well as talking about the role of healthcare. Oh, I love that parable. That's that's very uh, helpful to all of us who didn't grow up in the healthcare world. And I was wondering if you could just sort of highlight for us, is there a role for workforce development in the upstreamist world? Absolutely, yeah. So um, the question that started to arise, especially in the past five years has been, okay, so how do we train upstreamists? What, what are the competencies required? Uh, what does this look like in the workforce? And as you know, Ron, you know, in the past five years in particular, part of the reason those questions are happening is because of the broader kind of shift that's been happening, the shift towards value and outcomes and equity from health systems, right? And KP has obviously been at the forefront of both asking these questions, especially with, with uh, Bernard Tyson um, and his legacy, you know, clearly, you know, and what Bashar is continuing to kind of carry forward. There's an incredible, you know, number of people in the country who've been pushing the envelope and saying, what's our role as a health system to be able to ask these questions as well as try to help address them. The question about how to do that rests on this question of workforce to your point. So what we've done is identify six core competencies that are required. These core competencies uh, range from understanding the essentials of both population health for distinct panels of patients to community health, which is defined by geographic kind of work, you know, and, and in that same vein, understand the essentials of social needs, which are individual experiences to social determinants, which are community experiences to structural determinants, which are societal things. So we know, of course, like there's food insecure individuals, but they live in food deserts, which is a social determinant. And those food deserts are there for a reason. That's because of redlining and historic issues of structural racism. Part of the competencies is understanding these words, understanding these concepts, but other competencies include upstream quality improvement. There's also competencies around understanding race, power, and class, right? Because 
any analysis of uh, who or what is throwing people in the water would be incomplete if we didn't name these kind of factors of race or racism, more specifically power and class. And that, that requires, you know, a structural kind of competency, as some are calling it these days, that is often missing from a lot of our health professions training. So anyway, we, there's six different competencies, and we are now working with partners, including the American Medical Association and others, to help to bring educational modules online and then provide to, to be able to improve the knowledge of the upstreamist workforce of the future then take those that improve knowledge and then put it into practice to improve the competency of this and then work with even a you know more forward-thinking group of folks who want to move from just knowledge and competency to mastery you know becoming true leaders in this kind of space and that's our uh, approach right now i'm so glad that you're driving this work and so we have come to realize as a society that uh, COVID has revealed a lot of disparity in healthcare. And so if there were more widespread adoption of community-based workforce principles, what do you hope to see as improvement in healthcare disparity in the future? So I'm glad you asked about the community-based workforce principles. What we recognized is that um, in every disaster response effort, a community-based workforce is an essential ingredient, an essential component of how to uh, be able to provide response and recovery to any disaster, including a pandemic. What I mean is a community-based workforce is something that is in addition to a formal public health workforce, formal governmental public health, where we clearly need more resources. And a community-based workforce is also distinct from the formal healthcare workforce, the doctors, nurses, medical assistants, many others in the formal healthcare system. For example, community-based nonprofits, community health workers, the trusted voices that you go to when, um, when you're in a neighborhood and you go to the person who is putting together the neighborhood in a response to help the elderly person down the block who is living on their own. So we put together community-based workforce principles with allies across the country about uh, five months ago. And we started then to create this alliance around it to help promote these issues. And the reason that's important is because our underlying premise to answer your question about equity is this. If we want effective pandemic response or recovery, if we want to make sure it's equitable as well, we need to actually um, include community-based workforce members. We have to bring them in um, to care teams on the healthcare system, bring them into contact tracing teams on the public health side, bring them in so that we can help to ensure that there's more equity and more effectiveness of all the things we're trying to do. And what is true for the pandemic is true for the health system writ large, right? To be able to address the racial inequities, the economic inequities that clearly are shaping COVID, but also shape every other health condition. We need to tap into trusted voices in communities to be able to augment this interventions that every other workforce is trying to implement, both from the healthcare or the public health side. And so Rishi, if, if you wanted to be one of these trusted voices that can help augment healthcare, what are examples of titles or occupations that you would want to pursue? Yeah, so one of the, the most common titles is a community health worker. The American Public Health Association has come up with a definition several years ago. Um, and largely what's part of the definition is this point about being a trusted worker, a trusted member of a community who also is participating regularly in health promotion, health education, and a whole range of roles. So community health worker is one title. There are a few related kind of jobs that are out there from health navigator to community health educator. Uh, some health plans right now are calling a community health advocate. There are promotores de salud, who again are kind of trusted members of the Latinx community, Spanish speaking. 
So starting with community health worker, looking at community health navigator, community health educator, community health advocate, there's a variety of different titles that are out there that speak to similar issues um, around what it means to be part of a community-based workforce. And just to clarify for our audience, you know, at the very beginning, we talked about the path to becoming a doctor, which people know are, is years and decades. What's, what's the length of time to become one of these roles in terms of investment in education or higher education? Oftentimes, um, whether it's a community health worker role or promotor de salud or uh, various other kind of, you know, iterations of similar job classifications, what people do is to sometimes find pathways to get more formal training. And it doesn't mean necessarily, you know, a formal degree. It means entering often organizations that are community-based that help recruit those trusted voices and give them additional training in issues like hypertension management or, you know, uh, contact tracing or whatnot. It's essentially these community-based organizations as well as some academic institutions. So whether it's community-based education or academic institution-based education, there are pathways for individuals who already have a degree of interest and a strong sense of trust and you know relationships with their community then allows you to kind of enter into these different pathways to get more education and training. What we need to do, I think, collectively is to ask ourselves how we can provide pathways for more formal training, more formal education, more formal supports, like the incentives that allowed me to become a doctor. How do we create more incentives for people who um, have this deep relational expertise, right? Not necessarily the technical expertise that doctors are prized for, right? But the relational expertise that community members like um, potential CHWs have. That's the real opportunity, I think, that we all face right now, but I don't know if that answered your question directly or... <laughs> no, it's a perfect answer. And I'm, I'm looking forward to having Futura Health work with you on that. So Rishi, you were a member of the California Future Health Workforce Commission, which issued a plan last year to eliminate the state's primary care workforce shortage. What can you tell us about how those recommendations are playing out? Yeah, it's something I love talking about because it was a phenomenal opportunity to be a, a commissioner, obviously, on the state commission. Um, the quick history is, you know, several funders came together and recognized several years ago that looking forward to 2030, uh, we clearly saw a lot of shortcomings, right, in terms of the number of health professionals. And the question was, how can we start making plans now to be able to influence policymakers to be able to invest in places where we need? After a really long process, a lot of public comment, a lot of stakeholder engagement input from hundreds of actually stakeholders in the state. Uh, the commission then put forward a lot of recommendations, including top 10 recommendations uh, for making a major impact on the health workforce needs of the future, including primary care, including how to address the aging population that we're gonna, that we have now and we'll have even more in 2030, including the rural urban kind of gaps and disparities, um, et cetera. So wonderful recommendations. And to your point about, you know, what impact or traction it's had, it's actually been tremendous. So for example, Late last year, Governor Newsom endorsed a major investment in expanding loan repayment opportunities, right, to expand opportunities for physicians and other healthcare professionals to be able to work in underserved communities. Well, very akin to what I talked about with the National Health Service Corps opportunity for myself. Massive investment that now allows for even more individuals who come from, who look like, um, right, who are committed to serving minoritized communities, marginalized communities, rural communities, to provide opportunities now for them to um, become able to serve in those communities rather than feeling like they don't have the financial wherewithal to be able to go into the profession, let alone kind of practice in the way they want to. Obviously, COVID changed the pacing of some of those conversations, but I'm proud to say that the commission's recommendations have largely been met with very receptive years from um, state government. And now it's just a question of continuing to kind of see how all of us can learn about the commission's recommendations and how we can then participate in the conversations around how to implement them. Yes. 
continue that important focus. And so um, let's close out. I would love to ask you, as president of Health Begins, which has partners across the whole country, you have a perspective on what's happening nationally. So what do you see as the biggest impact of the COVID crisis on the public health and healthcare system? I think what COVID has done is to reveal longstanding challenges that many of us have always known about in the healthcare systems, longstanding challenges in terms of the the structure of how healthcare is delivered, um, how supplies are administered or you know provided, of how public health systems are coordinated or not, and, and also the underlying inequities, especially racial inequities, of course, um, that I think we've we've all become as a nation more aware of than ever. The challenge then is like how can we actually come together to address it? Um, Health Begins is just one of you know many many organizations, including yours and Future Health, that are thinking about ways to now step up and collaborate. We do know a couple of things. One is this is only um, something that can be done together. You know this is the time for collaboration for. Um, perhaps old incentives to kind of jockey for position, you know, where one organization tries to say, okay, well, this is our thing. And then we don't have time for that. We need more than ever to um, give rise to collaborative leadership. Second is that I think, you know, when it comes to rising to this challenge, we certainly know that for those who were unaware of the importance of social determinants of health, of the upstream issues, well, if you were unaware of it before, COVID has taught us that it's fundamentally important. If we want to suppress the, the transmission of the virus of COVID in the community, we have to invest in the upstream issues that um, can support people to, to stay healthy and uh, stay isolated and care for their families and not have to essentially have the same kinds of questions that are, were happening pre-COVID, which is, do I pay for health um, or do I pay for food? Do I go to the doctor or do I pay my rent? those choices now are becoming starkly kind of difficult, especially as we see the massive unemployment issues that have been part of the fallout from COVID. So the last thing is that this is about equity, 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 right? I think it's time for us to acknowledge that it's not a choice of being more effective or being more equitable. The only way to be effective is to actually um, center our work on an equity frame, understand what this looks like. And equity means then asking ourselves, like, we might be saying these words, we might be understanding these things, but do we really have a deep understanding of what it means to do this, both with partners, with our you know, own strategies, and frankly, also internally, what does it mean to actually raise the bar on equity? And that is a necessary discomfort that we all have to go through. We have to, like, challenge ourselves because the structures that we've all kind of benefited from, that we're all kind of part of right now, have long been inequitable. So... Uh, these are challenging times, but I think COVID has taught us that we can rise to the occasion by collaborative leadership, by really focusing in on the social determinants of health and the structural determinants of health, and, and lastly, kind of putting equity at the center of our conversations. And, that, and the good news is I see a lot of leaders, including you, including many others, you know, modeling what that looks like. Well, thank you for that call to action. I'm sure our listeners will agree with me that you're just a wealth of knowledge, experience, and a person of great vision for our country here. Thank you very much for being with us today. I am Vontone Quinlevin with Futuro Health. Thanks for checking out this episode of Workforce Rx. I hope you will join us again as we continue to explore how to create a future-focused workforce in America. Mm-hmm.